Titus chapter 1, if you would. Titus chapter 1. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these men. I thank you, God, for this evening and the chance that we have tonight to gather here in your name, to study your word, to consider, Lord, what you would say to us today, tonight, about being the men that you've called us to be in this church, the men that you've called us to be in our community, the men that you have called us to be in our homes. So I ask God that you would speak to us, that you would teach us, in Jesus' name, amen. So we have been in the book of Titus now a couple weeks, and we've noted that the, the Paul is writing to his young son in the faith, Titus, to encourage him to set in order the things that were lacking in the churches, in the gatherings there on the island of Crete, and that he was to appoint elders. And last week we started talking about the role of an elder in a congregation, in a church setting. And we noted that the words elder, bishop, and pastor all refer to the same office, just different titles. So we noted that elder describes the man, that he's somebody who is mature in the Lord. Not necessarily mature in age, can be that, but you know, some guys come to faith late in life, and so they're not they're an elder physically, but they're not an elder spiritually. At the same time, there could be somebody who's younger, a younger man, but who is, you know, just really spiritually mature. And so um, an elder speaks of the man, he's somebody mature in the Lord. Bishop speaks of the ministry, which means to oversee. And I always say you have to be around in order to oversee. You can't not be there to oversee. Oversee. And then pastor describes the method, which is to feed and to tend. Tend means to take care of the sheep. We also noted last week that we started looking at the qualifications, that an elder is called to be blameless. And we noted that that word, that, that description is above reproach or not chargeable with some offense. And again, I noted the idea, and I think this is important to bring up in the culture that we live, because we live in a culture where so often things, you know, people just accuse people for all kinds of things all the time. And so when it's not chargeable in the sense that somebody could say, you know, something about, you know, Jesse, like, oh, Jesse's this, and then we, you know, Jesse did this, and we, we investigate that, and it's like, no, he didn't do that, or, you know, he might have said that, but that's not the way, you took that way out of context, and, you know, that, that sort of thing. And so um, that's the, the idea, not chargeable with some offense, and then we noted that he is to be blameless or above reproach in his marriage in the sense that he is the husband of one wife. And we noted that what that means is he's a one-woman man. And I would put it this way, that he realizes that his relationship with his wife is the second most important relationship in his life, second only to his relationship with Jesus. So he is devoted to his wife above 
all else. Now, that doesn't also mean that somebody who is single can't be an elder because Paul was single, so was Titus, um, who Paul was writing to. So blameless as a, in his marriage, blameless as a father, that his kids are to be believers and followers of Jesus. He's one, Timothy puts it this way, he manages his home well. And we noted that children are speaking of those kids who are in the formative years in the house, and children also speaks of plural. So it's, we're looking at the whole package, in other words, all of his children, and the idea there being that one rebellious kid isn't going to disqualify him. And then we noted that he was to be blameless in his conduct, that how he treats others inside the church as well as outside the church is very, very important. He needs to be a man who has a good reputation in the church and outside the church. He has a good reputation as it relates to his business practices. And as I mentioned last week, the body should never ever be surprised when somebody's appointed into a role of an elder. They should never be like, really? That guy? You know? Because they, they've watched and they've seen the reputation that he has. Now, I will say this. There have been some times when we have considered, you know, we were considering somebody in that role and, you know, with somebody in the church that maybe ran a business and we've literally had people come to us and say, um, I work for him and I just want you to know he's a different guy at work than he is here. He's kind of a jerk at work, you know, that, that sort of thing. And, and that's something that I just want to say this. I think this happens a lot with men. And, and, and I would say, especially knowing some of these particular individuals where this has been the case, it wasn't at all that they were men who were leading a double life. They were men who really, really loved Jesus. But I want you to hear me on this. Because I think one of the things that we often have a tendency to do as men is we compartmentalize things. And what I mean by that is we have a tendency to divide our life up into different boxes. And so we have this box as it relates to church and the Lord and, and maybe ministry that we're involved in. And, you know, we're very, our mindset about that is a complete, you know, one particular way. And we might be, cause we feel very inadequate just in a place where we're like, you know, man, Jesus, I need you. We're praying really hard about that because we feel just very, very dependent upon the Lord in that area of our life. But then we might have an area, maybe the, another box that's our family. And maybe in that we also feel like, Lord, you know, man, I need your help to be the husband that you want me to be. And I need your help to be the, the dad that you want me to be. And so we're really, really praying. But then we have this area where it's our business. And especially if you were very successful in your business prior to coming to Christ, this is one of the things I see that happens oftentimes with men is that they have a tendency to be less dependent in the, on the Lord in this area because it's like, I, I know how to do this. And so it ends up being an area of their life that they really function kind of in the flesh, 
And they respond in the flesh, and they deal with problems, they deal with situations the way that they have always dealt with them, and so they can come across in a way that is so different from this box over here when they're, they're in the Lord. And it's that, that thing that we have a tendency as men to compartmentalize our life in that type of way. But the idea that Jesus wants is he wants to be in the center of every aspect of our lives where everything is revolving around and connected to our relationship with him. So we, we talked about blameless in his conduct inside the church, outside the church, and we noted there in verses 5 through 9 that there were five negative traits that he was to avoid or that shouldn't be a part of his life and six positive traits that he is to embrace. And tonight I want to come back to verse 8 and just just zero in for a few minutes on one of the phrases, one of the descriptions that we didn't get a chance last week to go into in as much detail as I would have liked. And it's this phrase that he is to be a lover of what is good. What does that look like? Well, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. And in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, we're told this. He has shown you, O man, what is good. You note that? What is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? What is good? What is God looking for that we would do justly? In other words, that we would be fair in our dealings with people. That we would love mercy. I love the way the Amplified puts this, to diligently practice kindness and compassion. That we would be men, being lovers of what is good, that would diligently practice kindness and compassion, and then to walk humbly with the Lord. Paul tells us that we're not to think too highly of ourselves. And humility is a very attractive trait in a leader. So lovers of what is good, and it's interesting that good, this word good, seems to be a central theme in Paul's writing. He mentions the word good 11 times in these three chapters, and we see that Paul admonishes those who want to lead well and have fruitful lives to, be, to have a pattern, pattern of good works, to be zealous for good works, to be ready for every good work, and to be careful to maintain good works. These are four things that he mentions in this passage. Now here's where we left off, though, last week, here in verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able to, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So the elder is to be a man of the word, holding fast to the word of God, that his hand is connected to it. Now, I want to give a little bit of a difference, though. Somebody asked me about this uh, this week, a, a little bit of a difference between a deacon and an elder. Because both are mentioned in Scripture. Timothy gives qualifications for both the elder and the deacon. And I would describe deacons in this way. Deacons love Jesus and they love the church, but their bent is more towards practical service and practical matters more than 
people matters. That's, that's the deacon. That the deacon is drawn. The deacon sees things around the church and around the body of Christ as practical things that are out of place or practical things that, that need to be taken care of. Deacons love to set up and tear down. They love to take care of practical things. They love to usher. They love to you know, help people get seated. They, they love to build things. They're just wired that way. They're wired in a way where it's like, you know, they see something that is out of place or something that's broken and like, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to take care of that. That's just the way that God has wired them. After a service, deacons are more drawn to putting things away than looking for people to pray for. And again, that's not a bad thing. It's just the way that they're wired. It's just the way that God has kind of designed them. It's part of their gift and their gifting. Now, elders, they love Jesus and they love the church, but their bent is more towards people versus the practical. Now, elders have to have a servant's heart, and they should be willing to help out in practical ways, but they tend to notice, their, their bent is towards people they notice the person that's hurting they notice the person that just seems like they they walked in and they had the weight you know on their shoulder at our church in in Oregon we only had one entryway into the the room at the school where we met in and I used to train my guys I'd say you know I want you to, to put yourself in a place that you can see everybody walking in the door and I want you to pay attention to how they come in because you can oftentimes just tell when people are, are walking in, you know, what their day has been like and what their week has been like and just the way that they're, they're carrying themselves. And the ones who, you know, are elders are just drawn like, oh, I need to pray for that guy. I need to go talk to that guy today. I need, I need to go meet, <clears throat> meet with that couple because I can tell there's something that's going on there. So they, they definitely have a heart they, to, to be open and they're, they're available to be used in practical ways, but they, they tend to notice those who are hurting. They're drawn to those needs of people way before they're drawn to the practical needs and things. They're totally available for practical needs once the, the people needs are met. And so you often see, you know, when church gets over and, you know, we start to congregate and we're out in the courtyard, you'll see people who are, you know, just moving around and they're seeing, oh yeah, this trash can needs emptied and they're going and they're taking care of that. And you'll see, you know, they're moving toward this or they're moving toward that. And those are people that God has just designed, wired to be deacons and deaconesses, female deacons in the Bible. And then you'll see those who are just drawn towards people and they're sitting over on a bench with a couple and they're just talking with them and then pretty soon they're praying for them and, and there's ministry you know, happening there. And that's the, the, the difference between the elders and the deacons. And both, listen, both are vital and needed in the church. When I was at pastoring in Oregon, so we were a mobile church. We met in a school for three and a half years. We, you know, every Sunday, every Wednesday, we had to go and set up and tear down and, you know, do all of that um, type of thing. And I had some amazing deacons. 
in our church. Some amazing guys that were just so great at all of that. We put on, for a little church, we put on some really big outreaches um, in our community that you know God used. And these guys just were, were all over it. They just handled you know, and they, they were all volunteers, but they just handled the details of all of these practical things. And it was just such an incredible blessing. But as the church grew, and as the counseling load started to grow, and as there were more men in the church that needed to be discipled more than I could just handle on my own, there were certain of these guys that were amazing deacons that I had discipled, that I had spent you know, a year working with them. And I took a couple of them and I said, you know, as I, like I've been meeting with you, you know, for this past year. I want you now to do this with this particular guy. You think you could do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember that book we went through? I want you to go through that book with, with that guy. Okay, okay, Pastor Rob, yeah, I'll do that. And so I'd get them all set up, and you know, I'd introduce them, and you know, I'd meet with both of them, and I'd say, okay, you know, so now you guys are going to meet. And a month would go by, and I'd say, like, hey, how's it going? Ah, it hasn't, hasn't really been working out, you know. We haven't really been able to meet. We only met once, and it just, you know, kind of fell through the cracks and and it kept happening over and over again i was getting so frustrated so frustrated and there was this one particular guy in our church he he was uh his name was dale just a wise old soul he was on our worship team and and he was kind of my guy that i would go to he was like my sounding box he was the guy that i would just be like you know hey i'm frustrated you know and so i'm at lunch with him one day and i'm and i'm just I'll just put, I'm just bagging on all these guys. Like, I can't believe what's wrong with these guys, you know, and they're not stepping up to the plate and we need. And, and he said this to me, he goes, Rob, you're looking at this all wrong. He said, you know, those guys, those eight or nine guys that you just mentioned, they are amazing deacons. They're incredible. They're like amazing. And you just need to let them deek, is what he said. I said, let them be deacons, you know? And you need to start praying for some elders. And oh man, it was like the voice of God was speaking to me because I was like, you are so right. My whole, my whole perspective just flipped. I'm like, I'm like, man, I'm so thankful. You got the best deacons in the world. These guys are incredible. And I was just so, I was so aggravated with them. Suddenly I was just so excited about them. And I began to pray that God would send us some elders. And he did. Like two months later, we had like three guys come into the church. One of them had had been a former pastor. Um, Two of them had been elders in their previous churches and churches that I knew the pastor. So they were like, these guys are good to go. And they just stepped in and just right away started to pick up the slack and minister um, in that way. And so so, so important. And here at Calvary Vista, we have a great mix of both men who serve as deacons and men who serve in elder roles. But I'll tell you this, we need more of both. We need more of both. More men just willing to follow. And this is why I'm sharing this with you tonight is because as you're hearing this, I want you to be thinking about what's my bent What's my bent? What's, how am I kind of led and how am I drawn? Am, am, I, am I a guy that just is, I see the practical. Praise God. We need people like that. 
I see sometimes the things around here, you know, that need to be fixed, but I have no idea how to fix them. So I'm so glad that Jim Gerhardt's here and he comes and, you know, and he knows how to fix things and he has a heart to just be like, oh, I'll, I'll take care of that. And it's such a blessing. I don't, I don't want to, hopefully I'm not going to embarrass Jim, but I'm going to use you as an example. Um, Jim's a guy who's retired. He comes here a couple days a week and he has literally taken ownership of our facility during the week and it just blesses the heck out of me because he just sees things around here that need to be done and he takes care of them works with pastor steve and all of that and it's such a good such a great thing and he's blessed and fulfilled by that and so again it's knowing you're bent and and sometimes what's interesting is we see in scripture sometimes guys who are deacons become elders Remember Acts chapter 6? We talked about that last week where there was this problem in the church where the widows weren't being taken care of in the um, just daily distribution of the food. And so the apostles said, hey, we need to give ourselves to the word and prayer. That needs to be our main focus. So you guys pray and choose seven men from among yourselves who can handle this practical need. These seven guys became deacons. Two of them ended up serving more in elder roles, roles eventually, Philip and Stephen. But the rest, the other five, remained in that role of just, they were deacons and they were deaking and they were doing their thing. And that's um, an awesome thing. So elders, getting back to our text, they hold fast to the word. They're firmly connected to the word. They're men who are sound in doctrine. And Paul's going to tell us one of the reasons why they need to be that is because they're combating false teachers. We pick it up in verse 10. For there are many insubordinate, that word means rebellious, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped who subvert whole households, teaching things they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul said this testimony is true. And he says this, Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Paul gives us some of the characteristics of these false teachers. And the, the first thing he draws us attention to is that they're rebellious to the truth. They're rebellious to the truth. They are insubordinate. They, they rebel against the true, pure gospel. In the case here, and this was a big problem in the first century of the early church, these false teachers were legalists. And a legalist, I think a good definition of legalism is this. It's anybody who attaches something to Jesus. 
It's anybody that says, okay, it's great that you believe in Jesus, but you also need to do this if you're really going to be saved. Or you have to do this if you're really going to be spiritual. Or you have to get rid of this if you're really going to be a follower of Christ. It's anybody that puts Jesus plus something else. And one of the big things that was happening in the first century was there were these legalists because there were these guys who had come out of Judaism. And so they were very, very staunch and and what they believed about you know Judaism, but they had, had accepted Jesus, but they had a hard time stripping themselves away from Judaism, and so especially with Gentile believers, what they were telling them, it's great that you believe in Jesus, but if you really, really want to be saved, you also need to be circumcised. Now guys, I want you to think about that as a grown man, okay? <laughs> to think about, like, and, and there's no anesthesia, you know, it's first century. It's just like we're going to break out the knife and just, I mean, it's just, you know, come on. It's crazy, right? But this is the trip that, that they were, you know, putting on. And I love Paul. I mean, because Paul just gets like radical in Galatians. And he says, you know, I, I wish that those who are laying that kind of trip on other, other guys that they would just castrate themselves. That's what he said. I mean, it's li- literally what it means in the original language. So what happens today in this way? Well, I just met with a, 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 a group that showed up here about two months ago, three months ago. And uh, they, they cornered me after our service right out there. About six of them all kind of ganged up on me because they were emphatic. Like, you have to, in order to be saved, it's not just believe in Jesus, you also have to be baptized. That was their thing. That was the legalism that they were pushing. Was it's not just you know salvation? It's not just good believe in Jesus, but it's you also have to be baptized. Now we believe in baptism. We we do baptism, but we see baptism as a response to faith because Jesus said, "Believe and be baptized." And there's several passages where it talks about salvation, and baptism is never even mentioned in the equation because it's a response to salvation it's something that happens as we you know have been saved but but you know legalists are those who oftentimes want to say you know we can't if we're really going to be christians if we're really going to be godly we can't do this or we can't do that or we can't eat this thing or we can't and and it's almost i think i would sum it up this way legalism you know that phrase misery loves company it's like if i can't have any fun you aren't either you know, and so we have this tendency to, and I want to, I want to caution you in this because we have this tendency to take the things that God has convicting uh, is convicting us personally of. Remember Hebrews? We talked about this, I think, a, a couple a couple weeks ago, where the writer of Hebrews says we're to run the race, laying aside the weights and the sin. Isn't that interesting? He makes that distinction. Sin, black and white, clear in the Bible. Don't do that. Weights. That's something that can slow me down in my walk. But here's what's interesting. Something that might slow me down in my walk doesn't slow Tyler down at all. But here's the thing. Here's what legalism does. Well, if I can't do this, you can't do it either. 
And so we lay this trip and we put the conviction on somebody else that we are, that, that God has made clear to us, like, hey, that's not to be a part of your life. And it's like, well, we don't want that to be a part of anybody else's life either. And that's what these legalists were doing. And so they were rebellious. They were rebelling against grace and rebelling against the truth. And the second thing he mentions is that they were deceptive in their practice. And the idea there is they have an agenda. And what's interesting about this is that in Acts chapter 20, this is to me one of the most sobering passages in all of the Bible, all the New Testament, especially for pastors, for elders. Paul gathers the leaders of the church in Ephesus, little pastor's retreat. They go to the island of Miletus, and he's just sharing his heart with them. And then he says this. He says, guys, I just, I just got to tell you, there's, gonna be, there's a time coming where savage wolves are going to creep in and some are going to rise up even from among you. And he's like pointing to these guys. Like some of you are going to go off. Some of you are going to get derailed. Some of you are going to go off the deep end. And imagine, here's all these guys that love Jesus and they love Paul and yet he's saying, some of you guys are going to become wolves. And it's interesting because I've, I've seen this happen. And wolves don't always start off as wolves. But oftentimes it happens when somebody doesn't have accountability and they just start getting twisted in some way that they, 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 they veer off. And you know how you can tell a wolf from a sheep? Wolves eat sheep. And that's what legalism does. It eats Sheep. It eats the body. It it comes and it lays burdens upon the body. And and who who was Jesus? You know, Jesus was the most friendly, kind, loving, and compassionate person who has ever walked the planet. But you know the one group of people that he really had a hard time with and didn't have a whole lot of patience for? It was the legalists. It was religious leaders in Israel who were putting burdens upon God's people. And so they're deceptive in their practices because they have an agenda and then their motives are wrong. And he tells us here that they, they're going after dishonest gain. They're greedy for money. I think that also could be also they're greedy for power. They're greedy for position. They're greedy for approval. And then he mentions there at the end that they're hypocrites, that they profess with their mouth and deny with their lives. So they're saying one thing with their mouths, but what they're really living out in practice is the complete opposite. I love what John MacArthur said about this. He said, Paul gives two divinely inspired evaluations of false teachers in the Cretan churches. Evaluations that apply to false teachers in any age. First, he assesses their inner lives and finds them to be corrupt. And then he assesses their outer lives and finds them to be hypocritical and debauched. I want you to notice something there that Paul says, looking back at verse 13. He says, rebuke them sharply sternly and i think all of us we reread that and we're like right on paul man we got to get those guys and get them out of here you know that that's that's i think our tendency sometimes right but look at the the next phrase rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith 
And this is something we need to catch, that the goal in rebuke is to always turn them. It's to always bring them back. It's to always try to get them to a place where, if possible, you can reason with them and you can get them to see, like, bro, man, you've gone off track here. And sometimes, you know, it does take a stern rebuke to get their attention. But the goal, the heart, is to turn them. It reminds me of what Paul said. This is, for me, kind of a life verse for um, you know, how I view ministry. Colossians 1.28, Paul says this, Him we preach. That's why our thing out there says simply Jesus. That's what it's all about. Him we preach, but we preach in this way, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. The word perfect there is complete. That's the goal. That's what we're doing. We're preaching Jesus, and there's going to be warning, and there's going to be teaching, and hopefully there's going to be wisdom, but this is the goal that, that I can be able to, that you can be able to, with whoever you're ministering to, that we're saying, I'm, Lord, I'm presenting them to you complete, grounded, solid in the faith. And Paul says, to this end I labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Paul would say this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort. In other words, it can't always be just flowery and fluffy and, and positive. No, there's convincing, there's rebuking, there's exhorting. I had a friend once, a guy who would pastored for a really, really long time, and he was getting ready to leave his church and, and become an itinerant preacher. And, um, and I was asking him, I said, you know, how are you enjoying this? You know, just going around to different, he goes, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. He said, because you know what? I have this message of grace. And I just, I'm just going to church after church, and I'm just, I just get to talk to him about the grace of God. So wonderful. And I thought, yeah, that would be pretty sweet, you know? <laughs> You're sure to be like, oh man, that guy was so awesome. He blessed me. But that's one of the reasons why we teach through the Bible is because we're going to come to passages where it's not going to be the, uh, that message of, you know, just the grace of God. But it might convince, rebuke, and exhort, and it might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable at times. But it's part of the role. It's part of what we are called to do. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, tickle me is kind of the idea there, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, and do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. So, rebuke them sharply that you might turn them. And I want to consider as we close tonight, before we get into our discussion, this last phrase in verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. 
Pure here means no added mixture or foreign element. It was used in that culture to describe pure alloy, pure wine, pure milk. It's the idea of something that is unadulterated. And what he's saying is that a pure man is going to have pure motives that are going to flow from a pure heart. And that's what we want. Pure man will have pure motives that flow from a pure heart. In my years of ministry, I have come across people who, because of their, their motive is wrong, they can tend to resort to manipulation to try to get their way in situations. And I have literally seen in ministry people justify church splits, disunity in a church, pulling people to their side. I've seen people spiritualize and justify slander toward others. But at the core of it all, they're spiritualizing it. They make it sound like it's so like, oh, we're standing for this, but they're totally just ripping people apart, ripping a church apart. And at the core of it is impure motives disguised in spirituality. I've seen it happen many, many times. They wanted a role or a position, and rather than allowing the Lord to put them there, they would manipulate others and try to win others to their side and to their point of view. You know, that's exactly what Absalom did with David. Absalom would go every day and set himself in the gates of the city where the people are passing by. And he'd be like, hey, anybody have a problem? I'm here to listen. My dad, you know, he's too busy. My dad, he's not interested. My dad, he's got too much on his plate, but I'm here. I'm available. I'll listen. And he slowly was winning the people to himself. And that type, type of thing happens all the time in churches, sadly. Impure motives. I will do whatever I need to do to get where I want to be and get my way. And those type of people, especially if they're charismatic, can always find a following. And they always do. And I've seen it happen too many times. And it's just really, it's really grieving. So Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. Now we need to be careful that we don't take these words out of context, because people have used that verse, under the pure, all things are pure, to justify vile magazines, suggestive movies, and even immorality itself. Hey, under the pure, all things are pure, you know, it's okay. Let me be clear. Let this be clearly understood. That is not what this verse means at all. It has absolutely nothing to do with things that are sinful in themselves and condemned in the Bible. And this must be understood in light of the context. Paul has not been speaking about matters of clear-cut morality here but of thi- or of things that are inherently right versus wrong, he's referencing things like not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. He's referencing things, catch this, that are attack on the grace of God. He's referencing things that are 
going to be pulling people into legalism, into that type of behavior. The legalists were majoring on minor issues like feast days and Sabbaths and eating food, sacrifice to eat to idols. Things that were ceremonially unclean to do if you were following the Jewish law, but things that were perfectly legitimate for a Christian to do living under grace. You know, one example is the example of eating pork. It was forbidden in the Old Testament for them to eat pork. But Jesus changed all of that. When Jesus showed up and he said, you know, nothing that enters into a man can defile him. Mark chapter 7. Paul echoed the same truth when he said, but food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. He's like, say, the food doesn't matter. It's not what you're putting into your system that relates to your godliness, but it's what's coming out of your heart. It's coming out of your mouth that reveals your heart. But these Jewish false teachers, these legalists, were teaching the Jewish dietary laws still applied to the Christian believers. They said that if you ate forbidden food, you defiled yourself, but if you refused that food, you actually became holier. That was their message. And Paul is arguing the opposite, that these teachers have defiled their minds and their consciences. Therefore, when they look at these innocent foods, they see sin because sin has defiled their vision. But those of us who have pure minds and consciences know that all foods are clean. That it really doesn't matter. So it's not the food which is defiling the teachers. It's the teachers who are defiling the food. That's the point that he's making. Now let me put this into modern day picture for us. This is a debate that has raged in the church for as long as I um, can remember. It's the idea... In fact, I just had a conversation with somebody about this um, yesterday. It's the idea between music, music that is quote-unquote secular, and music that is quote-unquote sacred. And so I remember, some of you might remember back in the day where, I mean, man, it was like you, you hammered this. Youth pastors hammered this. You shouldn't listen to secular music. It's a sin to listen to secular music. Have you heard of backward masking? Guys, any of you remember that? Some of you are like, oh, I have no idea what you're talking about. They used to teach us that there were these hidden mis- messages. There were guys that uh, made, Bob Beeman was one of them, man. He made his whole ministry, his whole life. He traveled around churches and he would, he would play, you know, parts of like, um, the Eagles or Led Zeppelin backwards, and he'd be like, oh, "Come on, you're gonna now watch. You're gonna hear it's gonna say this," and you'd be like, "I didn't hear. It. Let me play it again. Watch. Just listen really close, you know." And 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 you're gonna hear this message, and like, yeah, it might have been there, you know, maybe. Like if I really, really, but it was that whole thing. Oh, this is secular, and this is sin, and this is sacred, and this is right. Guys, do you know this? Music is just music. I mean, think of it this way. I like to listen to, when I study, classical music, instrumental music. Put my earbuds in and just, just puts my mind in a good place. A lot of those composers, famous guys, were not Christians. 
wrote amazing pieces. There's nothing in the music about Jesus. But it's amazing music. Music is just music. What God calls us to do, guys, is to be discerning listeners. There is music that is vile. There is music that have, has lyrics that degrade women. There's music, there's lyrics that are violent and promote violence. There's, there's music and lyrics that promote things that are absolutely sinful. And we shouldn't want to have any part of that. But I'll tell you, one of my favorite bands is U2. I love them. I think they're amazing. I've been to two of their concerts. First one I went to, I'll tell you this really quick. <laughs> this, this, this won me. This like won me. So like two weeks before, I wasn't at this concert, but David Bowie was playing at Anaheim Stadium, and somebody rushed the stage. And as the guy was rushing the stage, Bowie picked up his mic stand and hit the guy with it. Well, same thing happened at the U2 concert. This guy rushes the stage. Bono's singing, and he backs up, and this guy's like coming right at him. Two security guys come out, and the band just is not missing a beat. They're just playing the whole time. The two security guys pull the guy off to the side, and Bono just walks over, and you see him. He's talking to the security guys. He's talking to this guy, and all of a sudden, you see this guy and Bono walking out arm in arm back to the center of the stage, and Bono lets him sing the rest of the song with him. I was like, wow, what a difference. Now, Bono claims to be a Christian. I don't think he's the most well-taught Christian, but I think he, you know, has, um, you know, he believes in Jesus for sure. But I'll tell you, that night, Bono climbed up the stacks on the side of the stage, and there was a and the second, the, the stack, the, the speaker stacks went all the way up to the second level at the balcony, and somebody had a big white flag up there. And he, he climbed up on top of the speaker, grabbed the white flag, and then standing on top of the speaker, sang the most amazing, most incredible rendition of Amazing Grace that I've ever heard in my life. Totally a cappello. And I was like, this is my band. This is my band, you know, from that day forward. Like, you know, and, and they, they have some, you know, some of their songs are about Jesus, but a lot of them aren't. A lot of their songs, though, reference justice. They reference things that make you think. Coldplay is another band that's like that, that does that type of thing. So my point is this. We have to be, the issue is being discerning. And this is what Paul's saying. Under the pure, all things are pure. It's like I can look at this and go, okay, that is vile and wrong, but this, this is just good music. I can embrace that. I mean, think about this. We sing this song all the time. Happy birthday. That's a secular song. <laughs> Under some people's definition, but we sing it. Now, I do get this, and I totally get this, because I have friends Jason Duff is one of my dear friends, and he says, Rob, I cannot listen to secular music at all because when I do, it takes me back to the days when I was partying and sinning and not walking with Jesus. And I get that. I get that. But the thing is, is he's not going to put that conviction that he has on his son who is 
loves music and is into all different. See what I'm saying? You know the difference? It's learning. It's learning that. Learning to be discerning. So when an elder is a man of the word, balanced in grace, a lover of what is good, he will properly discern those type of things. And an elder will take seriously from to not try to put other people under bondage, to walk in his own convictions. He's going to avoid putting trips on God's people and because he's seeking to, to love them and to win them. And when somebody is getting off track, he wants to pull them in and wake them up. He might have to rebuke them sternly, but the heart is, it's like, bro, I don't want to see you going off in a bad place. Make sense? All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time in the Word tonight. And God, I pray right now that you would... Uh, just bless our conversation. I thank you for the questions that were sent in today and, and, uh, or this week. And, and I just pray, Lord, that as we discuss these things, that you would guide this conversation. I pray that um, you would just allow us um, all the opportunity to be able to um, have you use us tonight in this time. In Jesus' name.